I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Santa Claus, the movie. So, Casey, it's that time of year again. Ho, ho, ho! Oh, <laughs> you kind of Ed McManning up there. <laughs> I am nothing if not this podcast, Ed McMahon. So, yeah, this month, I guess we can just dive right into it. We are talking about 1985's Christmas class uh, movie, <laughs> Santa Claus the Movie. Some people remember it. It's a classic somewhere. <laughs> In like the UK. The UK. Yes. Uh, directed, of course, by Jeannot Swark, uh, the director of Jaws 2, Somewhere in Time, Supergirl, and for the Mystery Science Theater fans out there, codenamed Diamond Head, with a screenplay by David Newman, who is the co-writer of Bonnie and Clyde, and also co-written, co-writer on Superman the Movie, as well as Superman 2 and 3, and What's Up, Doc? And, of course, this movie is a spiritual successor to those Superman movies, so it is produced by the father and son producer team of Alexander and Ilya Salkind. So, I guess we'll get right into it, because we have, joining us in the studio... To talk about this movie is returning guest, friend of the show, Rebecca Friedman from KTQALP 95.3 FM in Tacoma. Welcome back, Becky. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Casey. Ho, uh, ho, 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 ho. Right? I didn't grow up with Santa visiting my house, so oh, yeah. I don't know how this thing worked. Okay. You weren't, you weren't traumatized of... by a man burgling your house every year um, while uh, you slept? No, not while we slept. It was during Passover when Elijah would come and drink the, oh, the lamb's... glass of wine. Oh, I thought there was something to do with lamb's blood. Nah, and... that's the, the, okay. the think... angel of death. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I thought that was... We like... take it all in stride. <laughs> oh, so... Santa drinking lamb's blood by the fire. Uh, no, that's not what happens in... That the... is Krampus. In... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but I'd like to see that movie. (laughs) Yes, go on, Mike. Um, Becky, if you had to synopsize this film, this nay Christmas classic, in a paragraph or two, what is Santa Claus the movie all about? Can I just type a series of Z's? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, all right. This is a Santa. There are some Z's in it for sure. Yes, yes. There are some Z's. There are also some snap wide awake and assume that you're in a fever dream. Um. It is an origin story for Santa, which was very interesting because a lot of times we just kind of think of Santa as always extant and Santa as eternal, always has been there. Um, but it's not quite the St. Nicholas uh, origin story. It, um, it is... It's a Coca-Cola Santa Claus. I, yeah. 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 And so you have this this Santa from... Or, sorry, this avuncular, wonderful, childless man and his wife... Um, who are from some northern climes that then uh, uh, perish to death in the bitter, freezing wasteland tundra of Greenland or Sweden or something like that, and then are magically resurrected in in Santa Elfland, and he he becomes Santa Claus, takes him through the years, through these centuries, which are articulated in Roman numerals, because apparently in 1985, all children were really, really well-versed in all those Vs and Xs and Is. Yeah, yeah we were learned through the Rocky franchise. <laughs> oh, clearly, yes. Okay, yeah, now I've got it. So uh, up through the centuries from about the, what, 1300s to the modern time where Santa, one of Santa's elves is interfacing in the real modern world. This might be sort of like the spiritual predecessor to the modern day elf, right, with Mm -hmm. Buddy. Um, Mm -hmm. But it already happened once before in 1985. Right. All uh, of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. (laughs) So say we all. There's there's some antics that happen with the incongruousness of the elf in the real world, some naivete that is then popped. Uh, there is children involved, um, knowing the true spirit of Christmas in mm-hmm. some ways, uh, and it ends with a anticlimactic, um, not car chase, not even a sleigh chase. It's not even really a chase, is it? <laughs> it's a car sleigh chase that n- manages to be just... Z's. Oh. <laughs> but 
now I know where Santa came from. Yeah. It it the yes, this is definitely an origin story for sure. And uh you can see how this would be the same at trajectory as Superman. It it's almost the exact formula for Superman as done by these exact same producer team, to the degree that this could almost be a with Mad Lib's precision. A Santa Claus Superman sequel. <laughs> well, I mean, Santa is pretty super. I mean, the whole, there's like these sort of normalness, but also otherworldliness, something, someone that belongs to everyone, camaraderie with everything, really, really beautiful and good. A symbol of good, yeah. 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 But I mean, in terms Fortress of- Fortress of Solitude at the, the North Pole. That's that's part of the formula, because yeah. it does start with a, a character feeling, seemingly drawn by destiny into the far north where they are given a red costume and the ability to fly. Then you have a montage that has them kind of carrying into the modern day. Um, they fly over the Statue of Liberty that they get pulled into hijinks with a villainous character played by a classically trained actor just hamming it up. <laughs> and eventually at the end of the movie, the hero pulls off an impossible aerial maneuver and saves the day. Plus opening credits against a Starfield. Yeah, it, it it's what's incredible about this. Uh, I think, and I think I've watched it a, a time and a half now. Is that um, for an origin story, you get the if you're to measure the, it against origin stories that you see now in superhero movies, um, it takes a hell of a long time for in the original Superman movie for it to get to it's uh you know christopher reeve playing superman as as modern day and holy shit this movie takes a long time for santa to get into gear it's like <laughs> it's like a 45 minute origin story yeah. it's almost a short film in and of itself yeah well because that part of it before you meet the villainous ham played by none other than John Lithgow, who must have had titanium teeth implanted into his skull in order to chew the scenery as much as he does oh in my this film. God. He's a, yeah. walk, he's a walking cartoon. Be- he's... Before you, though, oh, even wow. get to the villain of John Lithgow, yeah. you do have this beautiful extended montage of, of elf Santa land that is just crazy and beautiful and stunning and kind of like if you could just end it there that would be great now we would know how santa came to be and how all the toys are made and how what what toys are like and what elves are like and apparently elves are all male they're very uh, astonished when santa is resurrected into san well pre-santa proto-santa before he gets the mantle you know given to him with the name of santa claus uh so so uncle claus and anya uh, as somewhat elder, elder, like I would say, what fifties? Yeah. Um, because they're graying. I mean, he's he's definitely got the 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 belly, the gray beard, the gray hair. She's got this wonderful sort of like graying hair that's done up in almost uh you know braids that are like looping around her her head. It looks so, like Carrie Fisher at the end of Return of the Jedi. Her hair looks a little uh, bit like that. Uh, yes, yes, very yeah. similar, and uh, very Scandinavian looking, and. Um, they're incredibly rosy-cheeked. They're incredibly happy people. There's no malicious bone in their body anywhere amongst either the elves or Anya and Klaus. It's incredibly sincere. That's that's a thing I think this movie does incredibly well, which is that it doesn't wink at the camera as a spoof ever. It's definitely not a spoof. No. There's there's little funny things that happen with elves, but it's not making fun of of elf life. It's mm-hmm. just Here's the elves in their workshop. And isn't it so cute that they all live in these like dormitory style sort of like beds all lined up like in a, you know, like there's even like a little montage where I was going to say music. Heaven's Gate, but <laughs> I was not going that way. They eat gruel. They don't drink. <laughs> no, but other... I mean, it's 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 a very much <laughs> a literal adaptation of what you would see in a Christmas card. And this is something I think a lot of modern movies do badly which is there's a, a strange apology for source material a lot of the time. In, oh, this is unapologetic, That's too, what I love. Yeah, to yeah. the nth degree. It's like, this is a guy who has a magical sleigh, and he builds toys for all the boys and girls. The elves are dressed in your classic Rankin-Bass elf costumes. So we're talking like bright pastel colors. They're all in red and green and yellow and orange. And they're polka dots and stripes, and they're so cute. They kind of like look like almost um whimsical mushroom tops you know like yeah. red and white polka dot mushroom tops yeah 
Um, I'm glad they chose to not go the route of making them all little people. So mm. there's one thing that this movie sort of pulls away from. They're not munchkins. They're just actors that are played with a forced perspective against Santa, played by, wait, I didn't even say this, played by David Huddleston. You may know him as the Big Lebowski. The goddamn plane <laughs> has crashed into the mountain. Yeah. They did not receive the money, you nitwits. Yeah, he's... He's very actually, different character. Yeah, you would never wonderful. say anything with that tone whatsoever <laughs> yeah. in this whole film. He's great as Santa Claus. And I think I was thinking about this before about who you would cast as Santa Claus. And there's a lot of rumors about this movie. A lot of them kind of smell like internet bullshit. But there was a rumor that they wanted Brian Dennehy to play Santa Claus. And I, he has kind of the wrong vibe he for does. this. I mean, he's a big guy, but he's a big guy. But there's kind of this kind of rough, masculine vibe about him. Well, there's always menace in Brian Dennehy. Yeah, always I mean, he's, a sub- he's the a level cop of menace. from First Blood. And <laughs> yeah. He's not crazy. Diesel. I love Brian Dennehy, and I know that especially there's a there's a Patton Oswalt in a story in particular where he has is, is loving and protective. Uh, look it up; it's great. But. He has the wrong vibe for this movie. And I was thinking about this is also the beautiful thing about the Salkinds casting Christopher Reeve, which is if you recognize the actor, like if they'd made this John Candy, for instance, yeah. playing Santa Claus, you would see John Candy up on the screen. But like with Christopher Reeve, because he was an unknown and because David Huddleston, he's been in movies, he was in, he's one of the prominent townspeople in Blazing Saddles, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't really know him as a leading man, you can sort of take a step back and just see Santa Claus up on the screen. And he never plays it with this kind of knowing wink of, okay, come on, folks, we know this is ridiculous, so let's have some fun with it. No, it's completely sincere. There's a twinkle in his eye. There's a there's like a gentleness about his interpretation of Santa Claus that he never really, he gets sad at parts in the movie, but he never gets angry he just seems like the kindest sweetest person and it's never treated like something that the audience is supposed to laugh at can can we talk about the solemn moments of david huddleston santa when he actually gets his name he's knighted as santa yeah. or he's christened as santa with by elf pope yeah <laughs> that, so and i didn't actually recognize who the pope that, elf was that's burgess elf. meredith yeah, right. it's penguin himself yeah so burgess meredith before santa claus goes out on his first mission it gets kind of quiet and solemn and the elves make a path and burgess meredith comes out and he's credited as ancient elf but he walks out and he has this incredible... He's never introduced as Ancient Elf. No. It's just a visual. Just a dude. Like, yeah. the no. exposition is all visual in this respect. Yeah. Just... We've gone from, like, ha ha ha, merry old end of Oz music with all of the elves doing things and dressing them up. But they find Santa actually looks better in red than in green. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Anya becomes the person who knows how to make the elf gruel that they all like eating. Everyone's super happy. And then it, like, the lights dim. And you have Burgess Meredith. <laughs> I, I still refer to him as Pope Elf because I don't know. He just looks like that. But he has a train that is carried by the helper elves. But it's not of a robe. It's his beard. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> so he has this beard that sort of forks in the middle, probably halfway down his chest. And then it sort of goes over his shoulders in these braids. It's like a wedding train. <laughs> it is insane, but it's kind of amazing. And I know that there's probably some person listening to this show right now who would be incredibly jealous of this beard or the elven beard caddies that follow him around <laughs> and carry it. Because that is a power move if I ever saw one. Just somebody has their job is just to carry this man's beard. He walks into the movie with utmost sincerity and Burgess Meredith just goes for it and just proclaims that there was a prophecy about a chosen one who would come to them a, a childless person who was a craftsman and a skilled maker of toys who would love all the children of the world and he dubs the Sir Santa Claus and he kind of walks out of the movie and he's never mentioned again but he gives this moment this air of gravitas that I, it's as strange as it is, I really like. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's Huddleston's reaction that sells the whole thing, where he was like, well, what would be, what would be that person who was that good and pure? What would their reaction be to understanding the 
sort of the gravity of what it is that was bestowed upon him. And the cut back to his face is great. It's amazing. It, it it's you're right. The sincerity is part of it, but then when that performance is reflected in Huddleston, it's like this is solid. This is he's Santa. really going for it as yeah. Santa Claus. He yeah. wants to be the Santa Claus that you see on like covers of the Saturday Evening Post or Christmas cards. The the version that you imagine because that was the formula they did with Superman, which is how do I take this character who you normally see as a drawing and put them on the screen as literally and as faithfully as we possibly can. Blush, lots and lots of blush, <laughs> lots, lots of, of lipstick. Blush. Everyone in Elf Santa Land oh, is yeah. wearing so much blush, so much lipstick, <laughs> and uh, red rosy cheeks all around. Yes. Yeah. Um, although you were saying that you know nothing about Huddleston gives the wrong vibe, right? He just inhabits a Santa Claus. Can we talk a little bit about a slightly mis- mismatched vibe between a, a known actor and then the the, can, can, we, can we talk about Patch? Patch. Oh, Dudley Moore yes. as one of the elves. And not at all, not carrying a martini glass at all in this movie, unfortunately. This is the only thing that's <laughs> a little bit of that mismatched vibe because Dudley Moore does have these these like little joke throwing moments and he tries to maybe be a little bit slapstick. But in this movie, alcohol and smoking is a mark of a villain or a mark uh, of someone that is bad yes. and not pure and not good hearted. Um, and so you don't have any of that kind of like drunken Dudley Moore sort of like movement and body habitus humor. Um, you do have so many awkward elf puns. Oh my God. It's like when you watch the Smurfs as a kid and it's Smurfy this and Smurf that. And it was like every 10th word was Smurf. And it felt like this was a decision they made in the script very late, probably on set. Like, oh, what if we just take everything like elf confidence, elf assurance, Elf you know, portrait. Elf portrait. Yeah. Uh, it's just <laughs> heaven helps those who help their elf. I mean, it was just constant. And a lot of times, if you just replace that word with self, the line doesn't actually work that well. No, it doesn't. So it's just <laughs> kind of wedged in there. And it's not as funny as they want it to be. No. And it's, I think Dudley Moore's really the only character who does it. But I think uh, Dooley, who's kind of like, Santa Claus, what do you describe? He's like Tom Hagen in The Godfather. <laughs> he's like, he's Santa's elf consigliere. <laughs> I, I always thought of him as like elf chief of staff. Yeah. 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 So he does one of those elf puns once, but I think for the most part, it's really just Dudley Moore. Maybe it was his idea on set. Yeah. I mean, he has to carry the comic. He's the comic foil. Not the bad guy, but for the good guy, he's basically the comic foil for the entire movie. He, his it, his elfness and his misunderstanding of the real world is like the comedy. Yeah, it's weird. And again, this is to put this in the context. This is the first non-Superman related movie that they had done in a number of years, and he kind of feels like the same thing that they did with Richard Pryor in Superman Three. Oh. I and it was, it was also a really yeah. weird fit where you have probably the biggest name actor at the time in the movie. I mean, Dudley Moore had been in Arthur very shortly before this. And he's playing the same kind of role that Richard Pryor played, which Richard Pryor was a basically good hearted guy who gets roped and manipulated into working for the villain of the movie. And then he has a change of heart at, at the end and helps save the day. Man, I thought that we were discussing this movie on this podcast because of the, uh, of all of the the anti unionization stuff that the villain has. <laughs> that that would be right up Mike's alley. Just... I totally it totally went over my head all of the Superman uh, parallels and the fact that this just is a superhero movie. <laughs> it is a superhero movie. It's it's a strange one, but it has a sense of being like a like a Silver Age superhero movie where it has that kind of whimsy where I think nowadays there's always that moment where somebody in the movie goes, oh, nice outfit or something like that. This movie is just none of that. Um, Again, the Christopher Reeve uh, comparison, which is that, you know, Santa Claus also has a costume that it would be very easy for an actor to feel insecure about doing sincerely. But if the actor just embodies it and feels completely comfortable in it, you go, that's Santa Claus. That's just Santa Claus. It's nothing silly about it. That feels like I'm watching a live action version of my childhood in front of me. It, it would be we would be remiss in not talking about the workshop because uh, you sort of the setting in this is there's sort of the frozen north where they come from 
and then the magical North Pole and Santa's workshop, and then you go to real world New York. I guess it's was filmed in Pinewood Studios, right? So it's yeah. not quite New York, but it's the more San- like New York. <laughs> but Santa's workshop is this enormous set full of all natural wood that has all of these crazy detail places for elves to poke out, elves to live. The, the workshops that it does it does take up probably the first hour of the movie most of it is in this workshop so they're getting their money's worth from uh this but i have to say i i saw that and i'm like this is impressive because this does sell the it doesn't look chintzy or cheap it does look fantastic and whimsical and magical in the way that a santa's workshop should look um and i like i said they they really overused the set probably because it was the most expensive thing they had to build for it but i think it is incredibly good and matches the tone of the of the sincerity of Huddleston's santa claus character yeah it's it's really the second half of the movie where i think it starts to skip the tracks a little bit yeah where it starts to kind of hit a wall and it's suddenly you're in new york but it's never real clearly defined what new york it is oh no new york is is McDonald's, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's so much product placement in this movie. There is So it's... the leap to to New York, they sort of go through all of these time periods and they have these little interludes to tell you that we're going through different times with mm-hmm. kids dressed differently. And when we first get to New York, I thought it was like somewhere between 1920s versus 19 or somewhere between the 20s and 40s mm-hmm. New York because they portray a little girl who lives in a very rich um, you know, privileged environment. She's got a governess. Yes, yes. Who I think is probably called nanny or governess, and dresses, you know, appro- like that. And the clothes really feel like they're of a previous time. It reminded me of my Samantha doll from American Girl doll. Mm. Yeah. Right. And so did the the whole trappings of the house. And I'm like, I think even in the 80s, even rich kids didn't live quite like that. No. Like I feel like there was a lot more like marble, like black marble this, and gold it facade. It feels like Gotham City. <laughs> like for for lots of it, you see the uh, the shots that aren't just helicopter shots of New York City at night, where there are sets and stuff of the houses. It does feel a little bit like Gotham City. There's parts of it where it you kind of wonder what century you're in because. Both the little girl Cornelia and that house and the governess and the also her name's she, Cornelia. Yeah, yeah exactly. that also makes it feel like a period piece. And then Joe, who's sort of the street urchin kid, feels kind of like he should be in a different movie. And I mean, you look at him, you go, "Okay, this kid is going to have one of two accents. Either he's going to be super Cockney, <laughs> or he's going to be the kind of New York accent that you have in a musical." And yeah. he doesn't have either one. And because of that disconnect, I can never fully accept him as a character. And there's a kind of timelessness to a lot of the first half of the movie where Santa is this character who takes place at a mythic time. And when you just slam him into the modern day, it never quite fits. And then you compare that to Lithgow's character. Lithgow dresses like an evil businessman of a previous decade. He has like sorry slicked back hair. He has a pinstripe suit. He has this kind of coat he wears that has like a fur rimmed collar on it. Yeah, he's smoking a big cigar. Yeah, yeah. The the Gotham City comparison kind of works because it's part of it. Kind of doesn't have the intentional anachronisms that you'd get in like a Tim Burton movie, but. You know, where you feel like a bunch of these decades are colliding together on purpose. It feels like it's happening on accident. And you're like, okay, on one hand, John Lithgow's character is this walking embodiment of Reagan's America. And on the other hand, he looks like he should be in a 1930s period piece. And (laughs) I never quite get it. It's like you see these characters and then you see like a boxy 1980s car and it throws me off. It it kind of pulls me out of the movie a little bit. Well, that's why the McDonald's is there to anchor you, Mike. Oh my yes. McDonald's will it's like a it's a happy womb. So, of course you get this scene where Joe, who's the street urchin kid, you know, pressing himself up against the glass looking into this McDonald's and I was hit immediately with how they had mic'd the people or ADR'd these people <laughs> eating because there is some, it's everything short of like, oh, oh, oh. it is so fucking loud and gross. And these are supposed to be almost pornographic advertising shots of McDonald's food and people loving McDonald's food and smiling uh, like they're in a McDonald's commercial because they are. <laughs> And then you have these wet mouth noises that just make me go, 
oh, <laughs> McDonald's is gross. Because that guy goes, <laughs> and a straw, and someone's just, they're chewing on a chicken McNugget, like a cow, and it's just... <laughs> Sound effects change everything, and maybe this person just needed to pull it back a little bit. Well, I, th- I mean, just just prior to the scene where Joe is looking in because he's very hungry, um, he's standing outside, and uh, there is a Salvation Army Santa uh, who's d- dinging the bell and taking collections, and you see him pocket the change and then pull a bottle of liquor out and drink it. So that's the world that, in a that brown Joe paper in. Bag. Yeah, in a brown paper bag. He also feels like he's from the 1940s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. It's like his collision. It's like Santa Claus has to untangle the space-time continuum. That feels like it's going to happen. Um, McDonald's was also, interestingly, the only place in the whole movie that had black folks. In New York. In New York City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was, a, this was a very white movie. Yes, um, for sure. Very. But yeah, it's just so strange about the 1980s, but we should talk a little bit about John Lithgow's character because yeah. he is like the walking embodiment of a kind of Christmas. The sort of capitalistic, you know, unrestrained, rapacious, commercialized, you know, trample your neighbor to get a toy at the mall kind of Christmas. So we meet him when he's in a congressional hearing about the safety of his toys or the lack thereof of safety of his toys. And he's having to defend what what are the two examples? There's like a doll that a minute it is exposed to even the slightest bit of flame just bursts <laughs> into like a fireball. And this toy panda, which it I mean there's like there's a kind of cheap shit that, you know, Barons of industry, capitalists will do to cut corners. There's ways it's like, okay, I'm going to be shitty with human rights and workers' rights. I'm going to pollute. I'm going to cut corners and make cheap shit. Those are the usual ways that they save money. What they don't do usually is fill a toy with broken glass, (laughs) nails, and sawdust. That's what you do when you build a toy for the express purpose of killing children. It made me wonder, uh, because whenever you got those stuffed animals, there was always a tag attached to the butt, and it says, like, made of 100% new materials. And I was, like, trying to think back to my childhood in the 80s. Was there sort of like the check your Halloween candy because there might be weird things in it that no one ever puts in it. Uh, Was there a time when toy makers, unscrupulous toy makers, were just taking like discarded refuse and like stuffing their toys (laughs) asbestos leftover (laughs) asbestos? Probably leftover (laughs) nuclear material (laughs) like waste from a power plant. I mean, I'm thinking more like the cardboard packaging or messed up dolls that didn't quite make it, so you cut them up and stuff them in the little you know bodies of them. That sounds horrifying. (laughs) He's got he's got all his little toy friends wrapped up in his entrails. (laughs) It would be better than nails and broken glass. That's for sure. But I was trying to. whether that's like a a call to something that was actually yeah, happening in the it, 80s it had to have the stuff we the lead paint and all kinds of crap we used to put on things i mean jesus christ i can guarantee you that it was something like a congressional hearing that forced people to stop or at least it was a lawsuit with a bunch of dead kids but well, what i love about this movie is that uh, it is clearly a total fantasy because congress are actually doing the right thing they're threatening a- to pull his business <laughs> yes. license that's i mean god it's like now I know, pinch me. It had to be in a world where Santa Claus was real. <laughs> but I mean, what's what's wonderful about the performance of John Lithgow in this movie is he feels like a combination of two different kind of characters. On one hand, there's that sleazy toy salesman that you Dan Aykroyd used to play on Saturday Night Live, yeah, where he was a guy that would say like, "Oh, here's the bag o' glass. Go ahead, and play with that, kids." <laughs> or he had like a Halloween costume he was selling in one of those sketches where it was called Johnny Human Torch, and it was just <laughs> a bag of oily rags and a lighter. So you take that. Dan Aykroyd character and you mix him with the Frank Gorshin Riddler from the old Batman show (laughs) and there's this insane intensity where this guy is constantly chomping cigars cackling evilly and and just wringing his hands together going (laughs) (laughs) and I mean Lithgow is really going for it in this movie I mean I think he can sort of sense that he might be in a not masterpiece so (laughs) you might as well step it up and i think that he's one of the best parts of this movie and i know that he doesn't feel that way i think lithgow has actually said this was the tackiest movie he'd ever been in oh 
Though it's for but some the reason, smarm, my God, the smarm that comes smarm off of this man just drips off this man. <laughs> it is kind of delightful. My my favorite scene in this whole film comes from John Lithgow entering his uh, his his factory when he has unceremoniously fired all of the workers um, because the single elf is going to be the one who who produces the most amazing toy or treat whatever whatsoever and he busts into his his factory you can't actually see the empty factory so i'm thinking it might just be the like basement landing of the service elevator and whatever studios they're in but right uh, he's got his little uh, lackey with him and he goes look around you no strikes no smelly workers and he's <laughs> he's he's got a cigar um in his hand and on the wall it's bz toy company and in <laughs> emblazoned on the wall are these signs that says this company does not recognize any union nor should you oh wow <laughs> and then underneath it next to one of the old time clocks that you know you have your punch card it says all employees must clock in 10 minutes before factory commences work oh son of a bitch so probably uh, unpaid too it probably makes you also clock out and then stay until the last thing is swept and of course you know, on campus so. oh see i'm glad that part of his factory blows up near the end of this movie <laughs> i mean we we have it's to talk about how up. uh john lithgow drops the c word in this movie that's right. When somebody <laughs> mentions that they've got a two thousand people on payroll, he's like, "Cobbies." <laughs> oh, that's c word. Yes. Yes, that's c word. That's like the fourth c word. But it's <laughs> it's kind of incredible just how much of a cartoon monster he is. Because at one point, uh, Patch comes to him. Patch sees all of these toys being recalled and assumes that means his toys are really popular, and says, "Okay, I've basically." in self-exile from the North Pole because Santa Claus doesn't like my way of doing things, which is this big sort of crazy Rube Goldberg machines and and production lines and... So he's kind of, he's he's self-exiled in order to prove himself to Santa because he's, he's wholesome as heck. Yeah. He yeah. just, he is inventive. He's a free spirit. He has a lot of elf confidence. <laughs> and <laughs> he's he, got a lot of crazy ideas that the other elves just don't understand but he needs some quality control. That was his That's real problem. Absolutely, because they put him in charge for one Christmas and everything he makes falls apart. And it gives <laughs> Santa Claus such a bad reputation with children that they are they are using violence on each other. <laughs> There's a scene where Joe, the street urchin kid, is apparently defending Santa's honor at like a basketball court. And this one kid is working him fucking over. It's like, Santa makes cheap crap. And he's like, no, he doesn't. And he gets like sucked in the stomach. And I'm like, what the fuck? This like got all Scorsese on me for a second. <laughs> to say nothing of the girls that Cornelia is at ballet class with, which is the only other children time you see other children besides Joe and Cornelia. And uh, no, Santa's real. Santa's good. He gives a blah, 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 blah. And the girls slap her. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is like a little like nine-year-old girl ballet class, like cat fight. Yeah. It's it also just, a really, really heavily ADR'd slap. It was like a three <laughs> stooges sound effect. It's like, just, <laughs> oh my God. It's, there is a lot of weird child violence in this movie that I, and I kind of love it. That, that kind of is. 80s-ish, yeah. right? It's yeah. still an incredibly wholesome movie, but you still have this this weird, like, you know, fighting and I mean, danger. One of and... your one of your main your main character, Joe, lives on the streets for God's sakes. You're like, you're this is a cipher character for the audience of children, right? And he like has to like rummage through the garbage to eat. So it's some serious there's some darkness here. But for it's sure. still kind of like a kid's musical version of yeah. homelessness. He's not like <laughs> I mean yes. you can go way darker than they do. There's just a lot of him shivering next to like a burning barrel. But <laughs> there isn't he's not like fully digging out of the trash. It's, you don't it's so weird because just like you said before about the the decades colliding each other, this character is coded like depression era yeah. stuff. It's, it's bizarre. It is so strange. Yeah. And th that's the part of it that just, it I don't know, it takes me out of it. And I've said that a couple times before, but I just want to stress that. It's, it's very weird. And the movie never fully gets back on track. Um, and it kind of, I think it kind of sours Santa's character because... Uh, um, Joe is not someone that sent when he when Joe meets Santa for the first time. 
uh, Santa doesn't know who he it was because Santa only knows the kids who are able to write. So only literate kids, I guess, Santa knows who they are. He's not he's not omniscient. Right. Santa gets all the letters, and that's how he knows what to bring kids. Yeah, I think there's a... If we're going to go into Santa lore at this point, the, the <laughs> idea that Santa Claus knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows when you've been bad or good. And there's a certain uh, ability that you imagine that Santa might have telepathically or that he just sort of ambiently senses goodness. But, and you kind of, at that point, get into Euthyphro's dilemma when it comes to Santa Claus. <laughs> where well, the- this movie takes that all out of the question, because yeah. we know that Santa initially didn't, early on, have a good list, you know, a naughty list and a nice list. It was... He's just giving everyone a toy. He was yeah. just giving everyone toys. Oh, do we talk about the origin of the naughty and nice oh, list? Because no. that was kind of disturbing oh, to no. me. Yeah, that's more of that child violence. Okay, so somewhere in the 1800s, um, children start misbehaving, or it comes to to Anya, right, the Mrs. Claus character's attention that children are misbehaving. Uh, apparently up until the 1800s, no child misbehaved, <laughs> probably because they were worked into forced labor and didn't have time to misbehave. Who knows? But you got kids and... Uh, presumably a brother and a sister and the mm-hmm. sister has a kitty cat and the brother is haranguing this kitty cat <laughs> to the point where it's Meow. he's right? doing enough violence to it that they had to replace the cat with a puppet that's how bad it was <laughs> and then you know no stop hurting my kitty cat and then you see the the kitty cat just you know sleeping and purring with the little girl and it's like oh you know he should be nicer to the kitty cat and it's mrs claus that says well he should get a lump of coal or something like that. Yeah, he I don't shouldn't know. get a toy. He shouldn't get a toy. Yeah. We'll make a, we should have a list that divides up the kids, whether they've been naughty or nice, and he puts Dooley in charge of it, yeah. right? His his chief of staff. He's like, <laughs> all right, get on that list, and hey, I'm going to check it twice. So someone else makes the list, but Santa checks it. Did anyone else have the emotional reaction to that poor cat getting oh, harangued? It was awful. That yes, I all did? of us are cat people. Just wanted to punch yeah. that we kid. We all have cats, so <laughs> we, we all had this reaction, and I was like, I think he needs more than not getting a toy. <laughs> he I, needs I, firm and gentle parenting. No. I was we don't thinking, do this in this household with this kitty cat. <laughs> I'm just saying there is a precedent in this movie of child on child violence. And I just say this would be a great place for a cameo where a couple of elves played by Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro show up outside of that kid's house. And the next time you see that kid, oh, of course, by the way, Pesci and De Niro have baseball bats shaped, painted like candy canes. Of course. <laughs> and next time you see that kid, he's got that like sort of like bolted neck brace that that bartender from Fight Club was wearing. Well, no, it's in the 1850s, so he's got to have like a steak, you know, like gauze <laughs> wrapped on his to eye. his eye. He's got, he's got <laughs> vinegar and brown paper, just like Jack and Jill, right? Just a nice L-shaped yeah. arm cast. I'm <laughs> 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 just saying, you're doing animal violence, you gotta, you gotta nip that crap in the bud. That's how you make Dahmers. <laughs> That's how that starts. So, I... <laughs> That's, so Santa's not omniscient. No, Santa's not omniscient. Like, I mean, again, Euthyphro's dilemma that you can either be all knowing or all good, but you can't be both. So they they side on the they side with Santa being all good, but not all seeing because I approve of the Santa all good. Me too. Yeah. Choice. I yeah. don't want I don't want Santa to be a, a, a badass. That that's another way this movie could have gone had they made it today. If you wanted to do an epic. So, you know, story of Santa Claus's origin, I think there would have been some weird need to have Santa Claus get into fistfights or <laughs> to battle monsters or something. And you don't really need that because that's not what Santa Claus is. And it would feel weird, this need to sort of make Santa cool or quote unquote realistic or to over explain the lore. And you go, no, it's just, it's magic. The that's whole all thing it is. is a cartoon between yeah. Santa, between the elves, between John Lithgow. Between the kids, all of them are cartoon, right. exaggerated, hyper-saturated paintings. And even in a moment where somebody asks, how did you do that? Like how Santa Claus and Joe teleport to the roof where his reindeer and the sleigh are. Santa Claus just brushes it off. And I'm like, that's how you handle it. You don't try to explain it because I think that there's this bad habit. And I'm going to say as a nerd, I am partially responsible for this trend. But this need to explain magical, whimsical thing in a way that it like elays adult questions and it's like you don't it's santa claus it's magic he has magical dust that his reindeer eat and they can fly that he has some kind of magical ability that lets him deliver all the toys to all the boys and girls he has control over time that's how yeah that's how he uh he's time time dilates he's close to a singularity or something at the north pole (laughs) 
But they don't have to explain it. They don't have to explain it. You know, they don't have to explain it. And I worry that they would explain it nowadays. And I kind of like, kind of like in, again, to make that comparison to Superman, the movie, you know, yeah, he just flies backwards around the world really fast and he turns back time. (laughs) Does it work in real life? Fuck no. But who cares? It's Superman. And the same thing. Who cares? It's Santa Claus. Yeah. And then by the, like I said, by the time that you collide with, reality and uh, santa doesn't know who joe is that kind of lets him off the hook for being like santa you never delivered this kid like a turkey sandwich on on christmas so he could have a meal so no, it kind it of also doesn't it, yeah. feel like he's not getting toys because santa has made some sort of divine judgment against right, him right that right. santa claus has decided that he deserves to be poor and <laughs> you know it, those are the questions you just don't want to have that santa just didn't know because he never wrote him a letter lets him off the hook lets us sort of enjoy santa claus but my God, I, I got to say my biggest problem with this movie, and you mentioned it before as being anticlimactic, Becky, it really is disappointing how much both the performance of John Lithgow and a couple of the things that he says gives you the impression you're going to get a much more grandiose climax than you actually are. That he basically... I mean, he's, in, he's kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to the law, that he's ready to get shut down by the government. And Patch basically gives him a lollipop that when you eat it, lets children fly. And that's the best thing. And he's going to give it away for free. He is not happy about giving stuff away for free. It's one <laughs> but it'll of the- be good publicity. It'll get him out of hot water with, yeah. uh, you know, in, and back into the good graces of the consumerist American public. Yeah, so he's like, and he even rationalizes it like a drug dealer where the first one's free, and then next year, I'll make him pay 100, 200, they'll pay through the nose! He just wants all the children to to gather together their little nickels and dimes, and I'll get all that money. And so he he thinks bigger than this, and I guarantee you he comes up with a plan that advertising executives have been fighting behind closed doors for decades to try to pull off, is that Christmas needs a sequel. It needs Christmas two. <laughs> and he wants it to be in March. And I'm just like, okay, that's the climax of your movie. That's where you go with this. You go with Christmas two. You you have these kind of warring parts of Christmas. You have Santa Claus who actually is sad about the 20th century a little bit. And he says that people don't care anymore. And that they've forgotten that the joy of Christmas is seeing somebody's face light up when you give them a gift, it's the giving part of Christmas, not the getting part of Christmas, the, the, the kind of plastic capitalistic shopping spree, shiny plastic. I want, I want sort of Christmas where it's all about, you know, black Friday and trampling your neighbor. <laughs> and then Santa Claus is all about, no, this is about being with the people that you love, being indoors, being excited about the next day and, and showing your love for somebody. And, this is the part of Christmas that I love having grown up and having God spent like a decade and a half working in retail at Christmas is that you do build up this, I guess you could say Pavlovian reaction to Christmas music and the season, which re- just, it reminds you of stress. It reminds you of stress and human beings acting their worst, screaming at you, being upset that the most popular toy or book or whatever of the season isn't in stock and it's all your fault and I'm going to throw a fit and how dare you not let me cut in line and all this bullshit where after a while it's hard to enjoy Christmas at all. I enjoyed Christmas day, but I really didn't enjoy the season. And I think that's, that's the, the conflict that should be heightened more at the conflict at this, at this movie, the BZ version of Christmas the idea of Christmas as this sort of embodiment of free enterprise greed. And then Santa Claus, where it's all about just being with the people you love and giving. And Christmas too has so much potential to be so (laughs) gaudy and tacky and tasteless and loud that it would, I, I just imagine an alternate version of this where John Lithgow comes out in a green Santa Claus costume in a really ugly tacky set just covered in sparkles and lights and, and pyro and <laughs> carrying a sack with a literal dollar sign over his back because <laughs> this movie is not subtle. 
I mean, if he's going to act like a Batman villain, make him a Batman villain. And when he finds out, as he does in this movie, that Patch, again, in his exuberance, went a little too far and that these candy canes that make people fly the second time around do more than just let you float around the living room. But if exposed to heat, these candy canes become bombs. That's that's some Gotham City shit right there. That's the sort of stuff that get this guy thrown in like Arkham Asylum at the end. And they never fully live up to both Christmas 2 and exploding candy canes in the way I want them to. I, I'm in agreement. I wanted something more explosive. I love the sparkle. So the the... 80s sort of like cartooning over the live action with the with the glitter and the sparkle and then Mm -hmm. it puff turns into real glitter on the screen the glitter and the sparkle is the magic dust that you put on the uh, on the hay and the moss and feed the reindeer it's the thing that helps you teleport to Santa's sleigh it's the thing that makes your sleigh fly and if you add it to lollipops it makes you float and be able to dunk (laughs) on the court um and apparently if you add a ton of it to candy canes, because Christmas 2's got to be better than it, it's as explosive as that little baby doll that got him called into the congressional hearing. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to hear, I wanted to see like things exploding and then that old Southern senator who spoke like he was from uh, uh, Inherit the Wind, right? <laughs> <laughs> um. I wanted to see him be all surprised and huffy and like, we're going to haul his ass down into congressional hearing again or throw that man in the clinker or something like that. I wanted to see all these little callbacks and um, we get we get none of that. What we get instead is um, is the climax of the movie and the hero of the movie. And really the only dynamic character in the whole movie is Donner the reindeer. <laughs> because Donner was one of the original reindeer that froze with, right? Wasn't yeah, it Donner? Yeah. Donner yep. and Blitzen. So yep. Donner and Blitzen were the original reindeer pulling the sleigh of the of the mortal Klaus and Anya in somewhere in Scandinavia. And when they were reincarnated after freezing to death, which is a terrifying way to start a children's <laughs> movie with like death, 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 um, then they join the other, what, six reindeer or four reindeer that's already at the, the North Pole in Elfland. Um, and Donner is always a little skittish. He's yeah. like, you just adopted Donner from the Humane Society. You brought him into your home and he's still like, give him time. He's going to hide under the bed for a little while. We're going to reintroduce him like slowly. We'll let him sniff the other reindeer underneath the door. Right. I don't know. Reindeer are like <laughs> cats to me. So, um, <laughs> so uh, then Donner's afraid of heights as well. So when the sparkle comes and, and and Donner can fly and the whole sleigh is flying, like he's scared to do these like really big uh, loop-de-loops or something like the that. Super duper looper? Super duper looper. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, he always covers his eyes with his ears and goes like, oh. Oh, oh yeah. Can we talk about how animated we could uh, not animate how expressive these reindeer are very <laughs> like they're little they're puppet heads with these weird the eyes look super moist they look like they're taxidermied real reindeer heads they look they look pretty look, fucking great they do for a 1985 good. movie there are scenes that do feature live reindeer because in the end oh, credits yeah, yeah. they're among the 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 organizations that are that are thanked mm-hmm. um it did startle me a little bit that there wasn't one of those messages that says like no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. And I was uh, trying to think of like Map oh, It to no. Benji the Hunted when that first started. And I was like, wait, <laughs> oh, was no. this before the time that we started putting that on movies? Adventure of Milo and Otis? Like, I like, I, I, I hope- There was a dog movie recently that was- mm, I hope the reindeer, mm. the, the actor reindeer in this movie were okay- um, but the reindeer, yeah, are very expressive. And um, I, I was watching it with the subtitles on. I don't know if you do that also. I just mm-hmm. want to make sure that I don't miss any dialogue. Um, and uh, whenever the reindeer would be like, <laughs> like what was it? It was kind of like a Wookiee. Like yeah. they make Wookiee noises. Yeah. And I don't know if reindeer actually make Wookiee noises in real life, but they did hear. And the, the subtitle was trumpets. Yeah. It was trumpeting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so <laughs> it's a good enough word. Yes. I gotta say, Donner is really the hero of the movie and the dynamic character of the movie because he is able to save the day by finally hauling ass and doing the super duper looper in order to resolve this 
ridiculous exploding candy cane car chase, flying car sleigh chase that is just kind of weird and like boop boop boop. Yeah, we we need to say that in order to compete with the Santa sleigh, that Patch makes his own like like wooden magical rocket sled, evil and evil style. It's got like toy soldiers and quacky ducks and stuff on it. It looks like a mix between a Blade Runner car and a parade float. <laughs> and it, it looks like a giant flying toy. It looks like the sort of flying vehicle you would have in like a Lego video game. Right. And it's a, it's a toy that's done in life scale, right? In yeah. real life scale that is reflective of all the toys that they actually make. So that callback to that beautiful you know Santa's wood shop. Right, right, right. It's all the wooden toys. It's the um, it's it's blocks. It's uh, brightly painted in your primary colors plus green. Um, it's and so so there's toy soldiers that like hammer on their little drums, and then the drums turn around and become the headlights. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was pretty cool. Squeaks and and beeps and Atari noises. Yeah. there's definitely some some mouse trap noises. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I kind of dug it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it just, it was weird and he, because- And he sleeps in the boot of the guard. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. It, like, it was like the kind of writing desk kind of hood that he has, and he pulls it almost down to his neck like a blanket. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not comfortable. Well, it could be for an elf. He's used to sleeping in these like tiny little beds all lined up like Madeline. Yeah, <laughs> it's very strange. But yeah, I was I was thinking about how watching it this time that- they separated the climax for the villain and everybody else that you don't see Santa Claus never shares screen time with BZ at any point. There's never a moment. And even I think it meant one point BZ mentions that he didn't believe in Santa Claus because he never got anything. And Patch is like, Oh, you must've been a a naughty boy then. And he's like, (laughs) I was no angel. Right. That should have been a time when you see some insight into BC and you say, Oh, he was deprived. It's not that he was actually naughty. It's that he himself was Joe, you know, that never got anything and had to warm up. It should have been a flashback to him, you know, uh, in front of a burning barrel in the thirties or something like that. Right. Um, Oh, we should also say who BZ is in relation to the child. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, oh yeah, the, yeah, there's a reveal. He's a step uncle, which feels like <laughs> it feels like you don't really need that. Uh, it seems like it's a bit complicated. Yeah, Cor- Cordelia's made mentions earlier about being like, oh, I want to keep my grades up, but he never looks at my report cards. Her benefactor, she lives in this big mansion, but you never see him. And later, Cordelia is her his niece, his stepniece or something. Interesting thing, before they make that reveal, even before John Lithgow enters the movie, when Santa Claus shows up, and she hears the, him make sounds and comes down and talks to both him and Joe, putting presents by the tree. If you look around the room, there are paintings and pictures of John Lithgow around the room. <laughs> yeah. I missed it the first time and I had to go back and see. But it is a neat little touch that you can sort of see it. They're never very large, but there's clearly over the fireplace a portrait. You only see the hands of it, the bottom part of it. But it's a giant like Trump-esque portrait of BZ <laughs> up there. And I, I think... The fact that BZ didn't get toys as a kid and the fact that at one point when he mentions that Christmas 2 is going to be huge, he actually says, Santa Claus will be finished. (laughs) And I'm like, those two things together could have been a really fun motivation that you have this sort of like evil robber baron who wants to ruin Santa Claus because he didn't get a toy as a kid. And I think that is the kind of like child villain logic that could make this really fun. And I don't know. I just, I wanted the the finale of them trying to chase and stop the, the, the magic car that Patch is driving full of candy canes from exploding. And the situation with BZ eating a bunch of candy canes and floating out to space to die in the cold void. <laughs> you could have combined these into one thing, probably involving kidnapped children. And you know what? If we're going to have Chekhov's exploding candy cane, we kind of need somebody to blow up, you know? I, I don't know. You say that, but I would really like to see a movie where Jeff Bezos, when the cops are bearing down on him, gets ejected into space. That would be, a, I would like Via to see that. Via candy canes? <laughs> yeah. Stop his face. Live You'll never catch me. Of- I'm going to, to elope to Brazil and where there's no extradition treaty. <laughs> I'll fly to Brazil with my candy canes. I just, I... That would be an appropriate thing you, for Jeff Bezos. You live by the space travel, you die by the space travel. But 
Yeah, I just, I kind of wanted these things to sort of go together because at the end of the movie, we end up with both Joe and and Cornelia just saying, oh, we're going to just live at the North Pole for a year. I won't have to go home for a year. So her, her legal guardian just died. He flew up into space in front of a bunch of cops. She's technically the heir to that fortune if the government hasn't seized it all. Well, lucky nanny. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and now that little girl just disappears and nobody... Is she presumed dead? Oh, I don't know. Because she's a very rich little girl who goes missing at about the time we find out that her uncle had a plot to to explode a bunch of children. And you have to imagine <laughs> it's deliberate because he's like this close to being the silver shamrock company from Halloween three. <laughs> that congressional report will be quite long. <laughs> that investigation. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I would love to read. See, forget the star report. I want to read that <laughs> release that into bookstores. So I guess that just gets us to the final question. The one that we've all been waiting for and, Maybe we've kind of given it away with this conversation. Is Santa Claus the movie worth your time? Me first? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Let's see. If I am a child between the ages of four and eight, and I'm being babysat while my babysitter is fixing dinner and happens to be on TV because I live in a place that has still TV and not just like <laughs> on demand through Hulu or Netflix or something like that. So the past. <laughs> yes. So maybe 1986. <laughs> um, maybe. But only if I could put it on like 1.5 speed because this movie is like an hour and 48 minutes long, which is about about. 46 minutes longer than it really needs yeah. to be to tell the mm, whole story. Agreed. It feels at times like it's a three-hour movie. <laughs> you know, but it just doesn't feel like there's enough to fill that time. At particular times, like when we're watching Santa get a little bit sad that someone wrote a poem about him that his belly, you know, <laughs> jiggles like a bowl full of jelly. And he has to go on the wah-wah carrots and celery <laughs> yes. diet. And it's like, why are we even seeing the, this? The like, sad carrot crunch foley up there. <laughs> that, I mean, that's a scene that could have been cut. Uh, all of the elf pun scenes could have been cut. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. All of the, the toy carving scenes could have been cut or sped up. Um, everything could have been sped up. There was... There were... It was entertaining enough to someone who is between those ages of maybe four and eight because it's so formulaic. There are so many um, derivative little places. I already mentioned that there was one song that sounded like, you know, Merry Old Land of Oz, ha ha ha. It starts out with some whistling that sort of is like hi ho, hi ho from the from the Seven Dwarves. Um, there are... There are so many little calls to just cultural, and they feel like lazy calls to cultural markers that tells you this is happy, this is sad, this is naughty, this is yeah. not, you know. And um, there's even there's even the the kids to bring you back to 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 do those '80s markers to make sure that the kids that everybody in the audience knows that these kids are in the '80s. They say things like. That's heavy, man, or far <laughs> out, <laughs> you know, or maybe yeah. even eat my shorts. I don't even remember. But they had these like little, little cues that tells you that it's in the 80s and that it's not in the 30s or the 50s or the 20s. Um, but were written by people who lived in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Yes. Yeah. And those things would be there to anchor and cue an audience of babies mm -hmm. it's it's disappointing because there's a first half of this movie that could honestly be timeless and the idea of needing to force it into the 80s makes it too grounded in one particular time and that kind of that kind of i think makes it not like like an an elf or something a movie mm -hmm. like that that's that can be timeless and it doesn't matter if you're uh you know a 12 year old in 2006 or a 12 year old in 2020 you can understand the jokes you know um it's not great it's so slow and it never it never at least for, as an adult it like never gets to the point where you're watching stuff that you are really engaged in until Lithgow comes an hour in if they had introduced Lithgow earlier and like you said you got to have him be a little more evil and have a grander plot, then I think that it would had a chance of being something very fantastic. I think it's worth seeing at least once just for the hammy 
Lithgow performance and for the Huddleston performance. Um, but man, I hope someone does a YouTube edit of this where they cut out 25 minutes because that would make it so much easier. Would you show it to your own offspring? Uh, I tried. Uh, I think I think the oldest has seen half of it, but I don't think he was very interested in finishing it. So like I said, it's just too slow. Yeah. I have a lot of perhaps unearned affection for this movie because this was something I must have seen half a dozen times when I was a kid. And I think I'm the only person in the room that has childhood affection of this. Yeah. Because this is a movie that I think it's fair to say has gone down the memory hole for most people. I didn't even know it existed. According to John Lithgow, only people who live in the UK love this movie. (laughs) And that... It's they're the only people. Br- the British are the only people who ever approach him and that's mention the Dudley this. Moore effect, maybe. Probably. Maybe. I mean, it was yeah. filmed in in London, but I want to like this movie more than I do. Oh, oddly, all of the elves and and even Anya have British accents except for Santa. So that's, I think that was yeah. a deliberate choice. I think they <laughs> wanted him to be a very Americana type Santa Claus. Oh, the Coca Cola Santa, right? Yeah, he's Coca Cola. Oh, Santa. we saw plenty of Coca Cola in this film too. Yeah, that's <laughs> the other part that. The sincerity in this movie, I think, is really good. I think, but then it butts up against these really obtrusive moments of product placement. McDonald's being the big one, yeah. Coca-Cola being slightly smaller, but the really strange PBR. one. Yeah, yeah, the PBRs. Pabst Blue Ribbon is such a, it's weird that it's in the movie. It's weird that it's in a children's movie, but it's really weird that a billionaire is drinking it. <laughs> and it's really weird that he mixes it with his scotch in order to hatch his evil plan to like escape to Brazil. <laughs> is that just like a, a non-verbal cue that this is a trash human being? Because I it's don't like, know. It's like Donald Trump eating his steak with ketchup, you know. Yeah, He's well just done like, with ketchup. Right. It's just, you're like, I don't know, that can't be a good guy. <laughs> um, but it's like, I look at this and I go, why is he doing that? Why is he drinking this out of a crystal glass? Because it just feels off. I am a teetotaler, so I've never had Pep's Blue Ribbon before, but I have friends that do drink. And just culturally, I've picked up what the reputation of Pep's Blue Ribbon is. And it is not fancy stuff. Hey, it won the Blue Ribbon in like the 1890s. It is the beer <laughs> that kids peaked in high cats. school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> beer that peaked in high school. It's beautiful. Yes. It's like, it's, it's, it's basically like Al Bundy, who keeps talking about that high school football game that he played. And it's like, let it go. You are not award-winning beer. No, no. This was also before the, there was a resurgence of of there being an ironic enjoyment of Pabst Blue Ribbon. This is the eighties. Yeah, there was no ironic enjoyment of beer because there's it was tens like of mustaches of back then. Anyone yes. who did it was doing it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the very weird thing about it is that this is. On its face, I guess the villain is the consumerist, you know, Reagan, free market, anti-union, um, you know, anti-joy, and yet the movie itself is a damn commercial for yeah. everything. Yeah. Bloomingdale's yeah. even shows up. Yeah. Time Magazine shows up. Um, th- you know, they're in they're in Cornelia's house, and oh, Santa, would you like these cookies? And usually you would say like, I made them myself for you, right? Said we got them from Bloomingdale's. <laughs> It's like, nice what? name drop, kid. <laughs> Are you so, buttering me up? I already got you your toy. It's a little late to kiss my ass. But it's <laughs> but it's 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 there are things in this movie that I genuinely like. And I think you mentioned it before. There's a couple of performances again, particularly Huddleston and John Lithgow. But this movie never goes big or weird enough. And it feels like some of the movies that I really enjoyed revisiting on this show, like say Return to Oz. What I really loved about it is how strange they are and how they feel like these weird artifacts that only could have gotten made through a kind of series of events that are rare. And this movie feels like it hints at being one of those movies, but it ends up just falling short and feeling kind of average. And that's the part that disappoints me. So I guess, is it worth your time? I guess... I would recommend people look up the John Lithgow scenes on YouTube. There's plenty of them there. If you want to watch some grade A Christmas ham, (laughs) um, my God, he goes for it. And he's fucking great. And his reaction to Patch saying that they should give the the flying lollipops away for free. And he starts 
turning purple and choking on his own tongue is wonderful for free. <laughs> he just fucking loses it. That's not how we do it here in a free enterprise system. Um, and that stuff, that's what I really remember to this movie. I remember this crazy over the top villain and I just forgot all of the boring that kind of acts as the, I don't know. It's like the molasses that that yeah. sticks everything together. I remember a lot of the bricks, but I don't remember a lot of the stuff that holds the bricks together. And it's really thick and it's really thin <laughs> at the same time. And but it is very sparkly and hypersaturated. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. So I'd say, eh, probably not. So. Becky, Becky Friedman, I want to thank you again for joining us on this show, and maybe owe, owe you an apology for having you watch this movie? <laughs> never, never. These are things that were absent from my cultural upbringing, despite being highly exposed to lots of Santa things and never really quite getting it. You are just, you any closer to getting it now? No, no. You just not never close. wrote Santa a letter. That was that's really the issue. You never got it because you never wrote him a letter. Oh, that was. It wasn't that I never got a toy from Santa because <laughs> I was no angel. <laughs> I don't do a very good John Lithgow. <laughs> so Rebecca Friedman from KTQA LPFM ninety five point three. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mike. And if people want to find out more about the work you're doing on the radio station and where they can find it online, where should they go? So you can go to ktqa.org. You can also find KTQA 95.3 uh, on all of the socials. And if you are in Tacoma or South King County, do tune your radio dial to 95.3. All right. Thank you, Becky. And a very special thank you to our episode sponsors. We have 18 of them right Hell now. Oh, yes. That, that feels like a Christmas gift. <laughs> so a very special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Zuri Russell, Don Tuvey, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kaylin, Matt Weber, Hans Twight, and Gary Kelly. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. We love you guys. And if you want to become an episode sponsor and join that illustrious crew of folks, please go to our website at patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to radio versus the Martians.com. Click the big green button on the right side of the screen. Or if you're on your phone, go all the way to the bottom. Otherwise, folks, we will catch you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. is why I am a captain of industry and you are an insignificant schlepper. Sure, the first Christmas is free, but the next one, we say, so you want it again? Bigger, better. Well, this time it's going to cost you. How much? I don't know, 100, 200. Where would they get that kind of money? What do I care where they get it, so long as it comes rolling in?